Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Finding Contentment, the official podcast for the American Institute of Stress. This is your host, and I'm the executive director for the American Institute of Stress. This is Will Heckman. Thanks for joining us again today. Hopefully you've been following these podcasts in the past, so you know that they uh, focus on stress and stress-related issues. So if you want to find out about the American Institute of Stress, all you have to do is go to stress.org. And if you want, send in some reviews, send in some comments. I love hearing from you guys most of the time. Folks, before we get started, on our topic today, I want to ask you to consider helping out AIS. Our mission is to improve the mental and physical health of the community and the world by setting the standard of excellence of stress management and education, research, clinical care, home life, and the workplace. And we educate and credential healthcare professionals and offer products and educational tools for everyone. We also publish two magazines, Contentment and Combat Stress which focuses on vets and first responders, but there's a lot of good stuff in there for you and me too. We need your help to carry out our mission and we need your help by way of a donation. You know, we're a nonprofit corporation. You know, a tax deductible gift allows us to continue helping you navigate stressful situations and to have a happier, more rewarding life. And every dollar is greatly appreciated. If you go to stress.org, you can find out how to donate. And also, just a reminder to check out our website for some outstanding webinars, past episodes of this show, and just for some new news, we hope to have, soon have this show, this podcast on YouTube. So make sure you check us out on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for the American Institute of Stress. You'll find us. <laughs> We're there. You've heard me say before that if you don't experience stress, you're not really alive. Stressors are everywhere, both good and bad, uh, and they come at you from your environment that we live, work, and play in from other people, and mostly from inside our own heads. Stress is defined as our reaction to change. And like everything else, you can learn how to master your stress and to live a more peaceful, productive, and maybe just a little bit happier life. The number of people feeling miserable has increased with growing political and economic uncertainty and the fear of a new viral disease. We talk about that almost daily. Global trends consistently show an increase in the number of people reporting that they're having negative emotions. And our minds and bodies are well adapted to short-term intense stress. You know, the, the kind of stress that was in our environment more than 200,000 years ago and gave us a, a, a fighting chance when we we're going to be chased by some saber-toothed lion or tiger. And, and stress turns on our fight or flight response to keep us safe from that imminent threat. Well, the tigers have changed and rapid technology growth and other factors in our modern life have changed our world beyond what our ancestors would recognize without giving us an outlet to vent our stress. You can't just, you know, fight the guy in the next cubicle because he's being a jerk. And so stress builds up to where it becomes chronic. 
and the primary forerunner for psychological disorders. Chronic stress is worse than ever, and chronic stress can devastate us. Our brains, they can evolve, but not as fast as our world is changing. This creates a mismatch with our environment, which is why AIS produced the documentary Mismatch Your Brain Under Stress, which you can, by the way, check out at stress.org. And to combat this, we need to know how our brains can get hijacked and what tools we can use to become better aligned with the stress that affects our bodies and our mind. And understanding how to recognize and move beyond that knee-jerk reaction to achieve full potential. Our guest today has just written a book called Be uh, Beware False Tiger Strategies and Antidotes from an Age of Stress, which I think really speaks to the social. By the way, here it is. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a, an advanced copy. Uh, Frank Ferenczi is an international recognized leader in health and performance education. Uh, he's earned his BA from Stanford University in human biology, neuroscience, and has over 30 years of teaching experience in martial arts and health education, something we both share as a common. Frank holds a black belt ranking in karate and aikido. He's also traveled to Africa on several occasions and studied human origins and ancestral environment. He presented at numerous venues, including the Ancestral Health Symposium, Google, uh, the Dr. Robert D. Kahn Health Conference, and the Stanford University Institute of Design. He's a former columnist for Paleo Magazine, and Frank is the author of numerous books, not just the one I showed you on health and human predicament. And he's a member of the Council of Elders at Mind Body Ecology Collect. And his new book, the one I just showed you, The Rare False Tigers, should be available, and Frank will correct me if I'm wrong, sometime in the middle of October. And it can be found at his site, exuberantanimal.com, or like everything else on the planet, on Amazon. <laughs> so all you have to do is search for it, you'll find it. Frank, welcome to the show. It's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for the gift of the book, by the way. It's awesome. You're welcome, and it's uh, wonderful to be here. I'm very excited to talk. Uh, first thing I wanted to ask you is, before we get into to everything else, is that you have a very eclectic background. You've been to Africa. You are into ancestral stuff and martial arts. How, how did that lead you to a study in stress? Oh, that's that's a great question. I I was actually a pretty weak and sick little kid when I was growing up. I had a lot of uh, vague sort of digestion problems and allergy issues and that kind of thing. And that only resolved in high school where I got involved with sports and exercise really changed my life and brought me up to a level where I was with my peers in, in terms of physical skill. And so I became really interested in the state of my body and the state of health. And that led me to the martial arts. And as an undergraduate at Stanford, I had a professor who said, hey, if you really want to understand the body, you've got to go to Africa and understand your origins. And I took him up on that. When I graduated, I said, sure, I'll do that. And 
that just led me on this journey to even go deeper into the body, find out more. I went to massage school. I studied athletic training, but it always gets back to the body for me. And of course, stress is this huge component of, of health and performance. So it, it's been um, an elephant in the room for a long time and it's becoming bigger every day. <laughs> so it's, it's a really exciting subject, especially because it's multidisciplinary and you don't dig a single hole. You dig many different holes, which is something I like to do. And it's very satisfying that way. It's very, it, um, you can be really a curious person when you study stress. You're absolutely right. And that's a common story amongst people that I speak to who um, get into the practice of stress management. You know, it's their own personal journey that brings them there mm -hmm. a lot of times. All right, so, so I wanted to begin by asking you about something that you, you have on your website. And I thought it was very interesting, something you had in quotations called the standard narrative that mm. you know, often appears in, in magazines and books and, and people, social media and YouTube. And that is that stress is an individual problem with individual solutions and that the goal is to just make the stress go away. Can you go a little deeper into that for us? Right. Well, I've been curious for a long time about where people get their information about stress. And I'm thinking that the casual person is likely to find information about stress at the supermarket checkout line, which is where we see the lifestyle magazines and the lifestyle magazines all present a similar explanation and a similar story. So they say, you are under stress. You, an individual, are under stress. It's a lifestyle issue. And we're going to give you a formula or a recipe to help make that stress go away. And as far as that goes, that's fine. That's that's a perfectly adequate way to explore it. But when you go deeper, you begin to realize that we are hyper social animals and we share emotion all the time across our networks, across our tribes, and stress is very much aligned with that. So we, we experience the stress of other people simultaneously. So in a way, it doesn't make sense to say that stress is an individual problem because it's actually a social and a cultural problem. And that is pretty easy to understand. But the other thing I find interesting is that the idea you need to make stress go away. And th this is advertised on the magazine covers where they say banish stress forever, live a stress-free life. And I think that's that's kind of disingenuous because just by being alive, especially in this modern world, you're going to experience stress inevitably. And for me, the goal is not to make it go away, but to make it meaningful and to and to have it proportional and precise in our lives, make it work for us. And that's what I try and do. So that's the objective. You know, you made some really good points. Um, one of which is that, and we've, we've talked about this on the, in the show before when we talk about it at AIS, is that especially negative stress is very contagious. Mm -hmm. you, you catch it and your community can be stressed out and all of a sudden you're stressed out and whatever community that is where it's virtual community or it's in your actual community community you work in so so that's a, a very good point and you're right there is no making stress go away 
<laughs> get that. If you're listening to the show, I'm telling you, it doesn't happen. It just, you know, you're not going to move to a place where they say, well, buy a house here, it's stress-free living. No, it's really Right. That's the utopian solution. And what I do is I make a distinction between stress as a sensation and stress as information. So when people go through their lives and they experience these sensations that are unpleasant, they say, I'm under stress. And what can I do to make that sensation go away? Well, that's maybe not the right way to frame it. I try and frame it to think of stress as information that's telling you something about your relationship with the world. And that's valuable information. So you don't want that information to go away. What you want is to find meaning there. Now, the analogy here is you're driving down the road and there's this flashing red light on your dashboard. That's stress talking to you. And you can cover that up with duct tape and, you know, maybe you feel better for a while, but the underlying problem still remains. So I encourage people to dig deeper and to see stress as information, as a warning sign. It's to mix a metaphor. It's the canary in the coal mine of your life. It's talking to you and you don't want the canary to go away. You want to listen to the canary. That's a a really good point. You know, and a lot of times, like you said, people, uh, the reaction to making stress go away is usually a bad thing because Mm -hmm. they reach for bad things. You know why they reach for like drugs and, and booze or whatever? Because they work, but it's very temporary and it doesn't solve anything and it messes up, you know, your perception of what that stress is. You learn nothing. Right. Even the good practices such as meditation, mindfulness, all of that, if your only goal is to make stress go away, then I, I think that's a missed opportunity because it, it, it is a learning opportunity. And that's that's why it leads to an inquiry. That's the curiosity. It's like, why do I feel so stressed? What's going on with that? So that's a good point. And that's it. And people should take note of that, that, okay, I'm stressed. First thing is stop and ask why. Yeah. You know, there was something else I wanted to ask you about, you know, through your studies and anthropology and things like that. um, And in history, you know, what is the difference between the difference between the stress we face today and the stress our ancestors face. Stress is stress. It's a reaction to a change. Um, but there, there seems to be a difference. Why is that difference so important? Right. Well, it's, it's pretty easy to do the time travel thought experiment and imagine yourself in a hunter-gatherer society in prehistory. And the stressors would have been acute and episodic. So the predator comes into camp, you have this really stressful experience with the lion or the leopard, whatever it is, and then the stress goes away, you survive the attack, and now you can rest in camp and for two, three, five days, whatever it is, and the stress diminishes. So you have these peaks of stress, of acute stress. And it's unlikely that you would have had chronic stress in a paleo type of setting. But now it's changed radically. We still have these peaks of stress, threats to the organism, but we also have the chronic stress. And we have what I call the mixed message of the modern world. So we have all this stimuli coming in that 
affects the autonomic nervous system in conflicting ways many times throughout the day. So imagine you're listening to media or you're you're running around through your day. You have an experience that leads you towards fight flight. And then five minutes later, you have one that leads you towards rest and digest or feed and breed. And these things are all overlapping in different layers and they come and go really fast now. So the autonomic nervous system is just whipsawed between one state and another. And that's that's basically never happened to before to the human animal. So that is that's radical and it's new. It's unprecedented. And the lesson there, the life lesson is to give ourselves some slack because we're, we're up against a, a stressor, a kind of stressor that has really never happened before. So, you know, give yourself some compassion when you, when you try to deal with that, with that chronic stress. I agree with you. I, I think you're, you're right on. I think we do have moments today where we have that acute stress, a, a, a near missed car accident or something like that. Mm-hmm. You feel it. You feel that your heart pumping. Well, that's, ex- you know, your breath increases. So that's exactly what it must have felt like, you know, to be attacked by a saber tooth, whatever, or an animal. I, I have no idea. Right. Attacked by a saber tooth tiger, but I imagine that's what it felt like. Today, some people, when they talk to me about stress, they feel like it never ends. Right. And, and that's a bad thing. But is that on them, or is that really the way things are? It's it's the ocean we're swimming in right now, and it's it's woven into the modern world. And yes, there are things that we can and should do to, to mitigate that. But there are so many challenges right now that I think it would be naive to suggest that somebody could go walking around and be stress-free and also be aware. And that's that's another dichotomy here, the, the, this relationship between awareness and stress, because you can make stress go away really easy if you just shut down your awareness of what's happening in your community and the world at large. And I think that's a common uh, strategy. Just shut down your awareness. You can make stress go away just by stop caring about the world. But that trade-off isn't really a good one to make for for you or for us. So you, the, the trick now is to keep your awareness open, experience the pain and the stress, and find a way to function in spite of that. And that's where some of the some of the tips and strategies come in. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your, your new book. Uh, specifically about the title, because I thought it was really interesting, Beware False Titan. And I've heard that expression before, and I, I, to be honest with you, I don't remember where it was. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the title and what it meant to you when, when you chose that title. Right. Well, I set up the book. The opening chapter is, I asked the reader to imagine that you're in a paleo setting, you're out with your your mates, you're hunting and gathering and doing that kind of thing. Maybe you get separated from the tribe briefly and you hear a rustle in the bushes. Now, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a judgment call at this point. Is that rustle in the bushes, is it a genuine threat or is it maybe a small animal that poses no threat at all? And if you make the wrong decision, you're either going to be unnecessarily stressed 
or you're going to make the wrong decision and be eaten. <laughs> You'll be consumed. You'll be cat food, in other words. So that's that's the metaphor for, for life in the modern world. And beware false tigers. Now we go out in the modern world and we look at things that are happening around us that might trigger a stress response. And the question is, is that really meaningful? Is that something that's worth getting worked up about? And I think one of the classic examples here is flying on an airplane. We that's that's kind of a false tiger because it feels dangerous and it's not normal. It's not natural to go up in an airplane. And a lot of people feel like that's more dangerous. But driving a car feels safer, but statistically it's far more dangerous. So that's a good example of a false tiger situation. Once you identify something in your life, as a false tiger, then you can let it go. And that that's actually helped me in my personal life where I feel myself getting wrapped up in a little bit of a stress spiral. And I think, okay, is this an authentic threat to my organism? Is this an authentic threat to my life? And if the answer is no, then I can just let it go. And it's a false tiger, no problem. And you use the right word, it's a spiral. It's yes. like a merry-go-round that you can't get off. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. really stressed out and because I'm stressed out, I'm feeling stressed and the next thing that happens because I'm already stressed, I'm stressing about that and then I can't sleep and I'm stressed about the fact that I can't get to sleep. Just <laughs> right. get off that, folks. You, you got to recognize them. And, and also in your book, you wrote something um, and you were talking about how to zero in on precise, proportional and appropriate responses to stress. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Tell us what you mean by precise, proportional, and appropriate. Well, start with appropriate. So if you're getting stressed about something that isn't really meaningful or relevant to your life, then that's that's inappropriate. And you know, once again, you think about prehistory and the beauty of living in prehistory was that every stressor was directly relevant to your life on the ground. There weren't any free floating stressors in the paleo. But now we have all these free floating stressors that are disconnected from your actual life. So that's appropriate. Precise and proportional, this is where we think about the inverse U curve. And this is a real common um, idea in stress science where it simply graphs the amount of benefit versus the amount of stress hormones in your bloodstream. And we know now that a little bit of stress is really beneficial to the body and the brain. It sharpens memory, it sharpens cognition. Um, your athletic performance goes up. All of these things under small amounts of stress is good. And then if you add a little bit of more stress, then it's even better. But then there's a tipping point and an uh, arc of diminishing returns. So that's where if you're a teacher or a coach or a therapist, a health professional, the goal is to find the sweet spot where the, the stress is precise and proportional for that person that you're working with. You want them to be under a little bit of stress, what they call eustress, and not take them too far over the tipping point into the into the diminishing returns. And that's 
That's always a judgment call. That's a, a difficult thing to do, but it's absolutely necessary. So make it precise. And the, I think the gold standard here is athletic coaching because they know how to do this. They take their, their athletes and try to stress them in just the right level. And if they do that, then they're going to get good results. And that model, I think, can, can be applied in a lot of different areas. You know, you're, you're absolutely right, because I was a teacher for many, many years, many decades, and um, you always want to stress your students yes. to the point where they're performing better, but you don't want to stress them to the frustration level where they give up. It's a, like you said, a sweet spot, and if you miss it, and you may hit it with some, you may miss it with others, right. the best right. thing is to know your own. You know, right. And that tipping point is people go running full speed right towards that tipping point. (laughs) You know, so I I always tell people, okay, slow down a little and and you might be better. Right. Yeah, and there's a couple of cultural things here too, because I think uh, if you're a teacher or a coach or a therapist, you have to understand that people are coming into your clinic or your studio or your classroom. They're coming in. They're already pre-stressed because there's um, ambient stress in the modern world. So you might not be able to stress your students as, as much as you would like. But that's again, that's a judgment call. And there's also the fact that... Um, I think there's a cultural value system, especially driven by marketing and advertising, that more is always better. We, we seem to believe that more is always better. And as a culture, as a people, I don't think we respect this inverse U-curve that that is really built into our physiology. And it, it's really part of being a living animal. So respecting the U-curve is, is vital. I couldn't agree more. You know, when we when we talk about stressing people to the point of productivity and stuff like that and going past that sweet point and that you curve, do you think that stress can also hold us back from our potential? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's doing that right now. I mean, there's lots of uh, cognitive consequences from being under stress. And it's a long list, but one of the most important, I think, is that it contracts our awareness of time and space. It, it localizes our cognition and it impairs our ability to see big pictures. So we, we are stressed. We have a greater sense of urgency. Our cognition contracts and we're seeing small pictures. And that's really damaging to our ability to create a functional future. So easing our stress, it's not just a matter of personal health and personal welfare. This is important for society and culture at large. And we can see we can see the stress epidemic right now as a national emergency. It's it's absolutely the case. I've never seen it worse. I, I lived through the 70s and the Vietnam War and riots in the streets and things like that. Maybe it's because I was younger. But I don't recall it, the whole community at large being as stressed as an entity as it is right now. And I, I really don't have people ask me, why is that? Why are you asking me? Like, I have no idea. I mean, it's, I think it's a, a personal thing. It, and it's a perfect storm of influences right now. And I think 
a lot of it's unconscious. If you read Carl Jung, he talked about the collective unconscious. And I, I think this, this stress is surging through the collective unconscious right now. And people are feeling things that they can't even articulate. So people are feeling the stress of social ambiguity and this radical uh, pyramid shaped social organization that we have now where there's so much distance between the rich and the poor. And not only that, but we're feeling the um, ecological crisis coming to bear on our bodies and our minds. And all of this stuff is percolating in the background, and it leads to all kinds of bad behavior. I, I think what we're seeing on the airlines now, all the bad behavior on airlines is just stress coming to the fore. And it's um, it's really a problem. Well, one of, the, one of the positives that are coming out of all this is people are becoming a lot more aware that stress mm -hmm. is an issue. It is no longer the, you know, the unspoken thing where I'm really stressed out, but don't tell anybody. You know, I, I we recently had a uh, interview with a police officer, mm -hmm. and a police officers notoriously, you know, the other first responders notoriously won't talk about their stress, right, right, for a lot of reasons. But now I think it's becoming a, a co more common topic of conversation because right. be more aware. Of it. There used to be the stigma. Um, around stress and to admit stress was considered a, a sign of weakness. And that's just, we, we can't live that way anymore. We have to admit it. And that's where I think Simone Biles, when she withdrew from that Olympic event, I think she was experiencing a lot of stress and she was pretty courageous, I think, to, to withdraw when she did. And she was listening to her body and listening to the stress that was coursing through her system and said, you know, if I push this too hard, I'm going to get injured. It's going to be a problem and it's not worth it for me. So uh, that's a good example of somebody who's who's paying attention, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you have to think that a person who has made it as far as she has to, to to be able to be on the Olympic team, must be a resilient kind of person anyway. Yeah. So if they're feeling that amount of stress, that they have to stop doing something, I, I get, you know, mad props to her for knowing right. that and, and, and stopping before it affects the rest of her life. You talked a little bit about before, about um, over time, how chronic, stress activates or inhibits, I should say, the growth of our neurons. It can even damage brain centers. And, and we talked a little bit about learning and memory and impulse control. Talk to us a little bit more about that because I don't think people realize, I've experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. When you are overloaded on stress, your mind goes into a fog. Right. And you really can't think straight. How does, how does stuff like that happen? How does this stress affecting our brains, which are basically folks, you know, that controls everything else in our body? Right. Well, the, the leading voice on all of this is Robert Sapolsky out of Stanford. And he, he did some early work to show that glucocorticoids or cortisol, these stress hormones, can actually be toxic to neurons and can endanger them and even kill them if there's enough of this, of this stress. But the, 
the way to think about this is to imagine the cortex of the brain as like a forest and think of the maybe a rainforest. So you've got all these neurons with this just incredible branching structure and it would be a beautiful thing to behold. I mean, if you are microscopic size and you could tour your own neocortex, you could see all this branching, all these dendrites and synapses, uh, trillions and trillions. What happens when the, the cortisol hits that structure is that the dendritic arbor starts to contract and the distance increases between synapses and now the brain is less effective. There's less connectivity. And so it takes longer for you to route messages from one neuron to another. And so there's a physical explanation for this. So this dendritic arbor in the brain is always contracting and then rebounding to expand once again. And that, um, that rhythmic oscillation, I think, is a normal part of the human experience. This is happening every day. As you go through your day, you're getting a little bit of stress, a little stress hormone. And so by the end of the day, the dendritic arbor starts to contract a little bit. And then overnight, it expands once again and reestablishes the connectivity that we all need. So the life lesson here is to not be afraid of this. I've, I've heard people say, oh, my God, the stress is going to kill my brain. It's going to it's going to disconnect neurons. It's going to kill neurons. And I'm going to, you know, I'm just going over the edge. But that's not really true. The brain is unbelievably resilient. And even though your, your brain can be flooded with with cortisol, it will still rebound in, in most cases. Yeah, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about stress, surprisingly enough, and um, a lot of them have personal stories that were v- filled with very stressful challenges. Trauma, yeah. And um, they come out the other side. Mm-hmm. I think people listening to you tell them that the brain is very resilient. You will get through it. That fog will clear. You'll, you'll, you'll heal from all this. And it gives people a lot of hope, which is yes. my, my number one mission is to, people to understand no matter how stressed you are feeling, you, you can heal from that if the negative stress part. Uh, and it, you just got to learn how to. Right. We are unbelievably resilient animals. And. And it's not just us. I mean, primates in the wild are doing this all the time. They get traumatized and they may have to take time out <laughs> and it might be months or even longer, but they they rebound and we do that too. Okay. I, the last thing I want to talk to you about, because I don't want to go too long, although, because I'm sure we could <laughs> easily, but I want, tell me, give me us, the listeners, members of AIS, myself, some tips, some takeaways that really that you would list as how to manage their stress in a healthy way. Right. Well, going back to what we call the standard narrative, we hear the tips 
quite frequently in various magazines and that kind of thing. And we, we've all heard about get more, get more sleep, get more exercise, try meditation, some mindfulness. And that standard formula, I think, is good and it, and it bears repeating. But for my experience, the thing that's most powerful is the ability to reframe our experience. And that means telling different stories about what we're going through. So it, it's almost something that, a, that an English teacher or a screenwriter might I prescribe to people say if you can change the narrative you can change the meaning that comes with your experience and that's what's really powerful because it can happen almost in an instant things can turn around and my favorite example is how we frame sleep and rest now if you if you go back to the paleo sleep and rest were never stigmatized i mean it was you just sleep when you want to sleep and that was the paleo but then in the age of industry we get the the emphasis on productivity and then sleep and rest were framed a new way and it was framed as a selfish thing because now you're you're not being productive and your sleep and rest is discouraged and you're actually stigmatized if you engage in sleep and rest but now that's starting to swing the other way and people are starting to say not only is sleep and rest good for your own personal health but it's pro-social so that means you, when your brain works better you're a better member of your community and that that is a that's a powerful reframe because now you can give yourself permission to do these things. So reframing sleep and rest, reframing your experience in the world, I think is crucial right now. And especially understanding the unprecedented nature of modern um, culture, modern environment, and the, the challenges we face. It it's big and it's huge, and you have to give yourself permission to to suffer well. No, you're so right. Every time we have a discussion about stress, those two things come up. Mm. Change of perspective, reframe things, yes. sleep. Yeah. Always, yeah. every time. It's, I, I, you know, it became, and you're right, it, there was a whole different way to look at rest. I mean, I've heard people brag, hey, I only get four or five hours sleep a night. Like it's, almost, like it's a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. You know, it makes you a different person. Yes, yes. Uh, The the reframing is so powerful. I had a martial art teacher once who used to say, the enemy is never wrong. And I've thought about that for a long time. And I thought, well, of course the enemy is wrong. That's why I'm fighting him. You know, I've got these people in my life and, and they're wrong about you. And so I stress about the fact that they're wrong and it gets me in the spiral. And he says, no, the enemy is never wrong. In other words, the enemy just is stop wasting a lot of mental energy thinking about all the bad things about your enemy. No, the enemy has certain behaviors and your job is to work in that context and don't get stuck. Don't get wrapped up. The enemy is never wrong. That's a great reframe as well. And that's one of the things I loved about studying martial arts for years was that it was not only a physical release of that stress, but the teachers were always teaching philosophical lessons along yes. with it. Yes. You know, how to, how they were life lessons. Right. I appreciate it. I'm sure you found the same way. Frank, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, we can't. I, we can't go through the whole book. Sorry, but <laughs> it's, it's a little bit long. Um, no. I will 
of course, read it. And everybody, this book is coming out. It's going to be out again on Amazon. But also go to exuberantanimal.com and learn a lot more about Frank and what he does and, and his other books, which are numerous. How many books have you written? Oh, half a dozen, I oh. guess. Yeah, yeah. So I always find that amazing. I have a couple of pandemic books, you know, that's what I had to do in the pandemic. So that's how I managed my stress was start writing. And that's a, that's actually good advice for everybody else too. Uh, journaling and writing is a, a very helpful thing. Thank, yeah. thank you again, Frank, for joining us today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I want to thank you again for the gift of the book. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Well, that's going to be it for today. This has been your host, Will Heckman. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Please don't forget to uh, follow us and visit us. Send in those reviews. Remember, your support helps make these uh, podcasts and our webinars and things, all the free stuff we give away possible. And I want to remind everyone, as I always say, just as stress is different for each of us, there's no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means you need to join us next time. <laughs> and we're going to explore more stress management strategies and insights. So visit us at stress.org. Uh, remember, we're going to be on YouTube soon. And we hope that the information you heard from Frank and I today will help you find content. So good day, everyone.